Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawn, New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, the Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside we take a story from folklore or mythology, we retell the tale, and we have a chat about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olahan. I am your host and your Fireside Bard. How is that for a bit of a different kind of intro? Welcome to episode number 31 of Fireside. We are now getting into serious Roman numerals. Each and every week I regret the decision to use Roman numerals to ep- number these episodes more and more. But they still look pretty for the moment. As w- and once we get into like the 40s territory, that's when we start. We've got to use the C's and V's and those mad kind of ones. But that's that's still a few episodes away yet. Still look. At least we're past triple X. Triple X, the X-rated pornographic 30th episode as it looked. And now we're on to episode 31, so triple XI. And we're dealing with a story called The Lady O'Connor. Before I crack down to that story, just want to say, as always, if you are a new listener, thank you so much for listening. Listening to this ep- Listen to this episode. If you enjoy it, why not head right back to the beginning and see what we're building up with, especially with the myths, with the Irish mythology. We're going chronologically with them. But these folktales, like this, like this story we're going to talk about today... The folktales are all out of context, so feel free to dip in and out of them. But the myths, we are building a little bit of a momentum, I like to think. And if you are a returning listener, thank you so, so much for your continued support. It really does mean the world to me. If you enjoy the podcast particularly, you can please do continue to like, share, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get Wherever you get your podcasts, leave reviews, leave ratings. They do make a difference. If you really, really like the podcast, why not support it on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash fireside podcast. Any small amount at all would go a long way into helping us to take this podcast live, which is our plan for the immediate future, and which I'm finally making some headway with now with a plan for a live podcast. Um, I found a potential... I have a potential idea and a potential spot that I think could be very, very exciting. But I will let you know as I know more about that in the coming weeks. Oh, the excitement. But I'm going to get down to the story now. So this is a folktale I very recently discovered, but I really, really liked it. There'll be elements of it that will be very familiar to a lot of people, I think, certainly in Ireland. Although not for an Irish reason per se, which you'll soon discover. There's lots to talk about after the podcast as well, about where this story came from, from my learning anyway, where where I found it. 
in a really, really interesting way. But I'm going to get right down to it and tell the story first. This is The Lady O'Connor on Fireside. The Lady O'Connor Once upon a time, in County Clare, there lived two families, one rich and one poor. The rich family had a daughter, and the poor family had a son. The son of the poor family longed to marry the daughter of the rich family, but he knew her father would never allow her to marry someone so far beneath her. The boy's name was O'Connor, and one day his father said to him, If you want to marry that O'Donnell girl, you'll have to get yourself some gold. Get as much as you can and lay it at her father's feet. Show him your intentions and how capable you are of amassing wealth. And I'm sure he'll see your love for his daughter. Oh, I'll just go and pluck a bag of gold off one of the trees, shall I? Retorted the son. You wanted my advice? That's the only way you'll get the girl. How hard are you willing to fight for her, son? So the young O'Connor set out to find his fortune. He was willing to work for it, but he could only amass so much. He knew if he didn't earn enough gold fast, some rich boy would swan in and marry his beloved. He'd probably have a monocle and a cape, sniped O'Connor. So O'Connor had to resort to more drastic measures. He began to beg, to borrow, and to even steal. He would sail to neighbouring villages and commit just a little bit of petty pillaging. He could justify it all, however, because it was all in the name of love. When O'Connor had all the gold he could physically carry, he marched to O'Donnell Manor and lay the sack of gold at his beloved father's feet. Is that all gold? It sure is. Where on earth did a poor wretch like you get so much gold? Hey, we don't need to talk about that. Well, it's not enough. What do you mean it's not enough? My daughter's worth her weight in gold. And I mean that very literally. Bring me the giant scales. And brought into the manor hall was a giant measuring apparatus with two large baskets on either side. Now bring me my daughter. The young O'Donnell girl was brought into the hall. O'Connor had met her so many times before, but was still overwhelmed when he saw her. Hi, said O'Connor. How's things? Never mind the idle banter, said Lord O'Donnell. My daughter will be put on one side of the scales and your pittance of gold on the other. And unless your gold weighs more than her, you can't have her. Father, why must you continue to subjugate me to these humiliations? said the daughter. Because it's gas. Sure enough, the girl O'Donnell was heavier than O'Connor's bag of gold, and the boy was forced to leave the manor with just his sack and no hand in marriage. Defeated and heartbroken, O'Connor made his way down the road until he passed a stone wall. Not just any stone wall, because on this stone wall was leaning a little man. How's things, O'Connor? Are you well? Does it look like I'm well? Does it? No. No, it doesn't. 
It was more of a rhetorical question, to be honest. Look, I know what's happened. And I know what you've gone through for this girl. I'd like to help. And how exactly could you help? I can give you all the gold in the world. And why would you do that? Well, I wouldn't be giving it to you. It would be more of an investment. I have no doubt you will be a very rich man. You just need a little push. And a lovely wife by your side. So I will loan you the gold for one year. And if you have not paid the debt back in full by this day next year, I will, let's say, I'll take from you five pounds of flesh. Why flesh? What's that good for? I'm a fairy offering you gold, boy. Don't question my methods. O'Connor was desperate. He had already resorted to crime to win O'Donnell's hand, so what harm in making a bargain with the other folk? You've got a deal. The pair shook on it, and the fairy snapped his fingers, and O'Connor's bag of gold grew and grew until it was taller than the boy himself. How am I supposed to carry that? Is this the catch? No, don't worry, lad. I'm not a hack. Here. And the fairy summoned a sturdy cart and a donkey to pull it. He hoisted the gold onto the back and sent O'Connor on his way back to O'Donnell Manor. The boy triumphantly marched back into the manor and demanded the Lord bring back forth both his daughter and the scales. This time, when the gold could just about be lifted onto the scales, it nearly broke them. The young girl was nearly catapulted into the rafters. Lord O'Donnell was astonished. I don't know how you did it, but a deal's a deal. You will have my blessing to marry my daughter. Provided she wants to, of course. Oh, now you're giving me a choice, are you? Of course. This was more of a weaning process than anything, to guarantee you'd be looked after. The young O'Donnell girl had never expected to love the man who would win her hand. She assumed it would be some rich Protestant ascendancy landowner. But instead, she was looking at a young, scruffy, not bad-looking lad, who had seemingly moved heaven and earth to win her. What do you reckon? O'Connor asked her. Well, at least you don't have a monocle and a cape. O'Connor smiled. I can get one, if you want. No, no, you're grand. Just marry me. The two were indeed married and fell madly in love with one another. The fairy's premonition had been right. O'Connor became an incredibly successful merchant, keeping in the business of investment the fairy had taught him. He quickly became incredibly rich and moved himself and his wife into a beautiful old castle on a cliff's edge overlooking the magnificence of the Atlantic Ocean. You are my queen, said O'Connor. It's high time you lived in a castle. I'd live in a thatched cottage as long as it was with you, said the newly named Lady O'Connor. Sometime after they moved into their palace, a huge ship was wrecked against the cliff's edge. The O'Connors looked out from their balcony and saw the ship was carrying teas and spices. 
The Lady O'Connor longed for a silk dress, which was so hard to get in the silkless Ireland. So they went down to the shipwreck and asked the ship's captain could they buy some. This isn't a market. This is a shipwreck. People are dead. You think I'm selling the bodies too? Maybe I could give you money so you aren't at such a loss. To be honest, ravagers and pirates will probably just take what they can anyway. At least you had the decency to ask. Take what you need. The O'Connors were delighted with the captain's kindness, but insisted on having him and all the ship survivors over to the castle for dinner. A lavish feast was held. Many of the crew hadn't eaten for days and were overwhelmed by the generosity of the O'Connors. The captain, who had initially been kind to them, began to grow bitter and jealous of the lavish wealth of the young couple. What did this boy know of hardship? The captain had dedicated his life to the sea. It had been a hard and unforgiving one. And what had he to show for it? The smashed-up remains on the Clare coastline. And even that ship hadn't been his. It had belonged to a merchant, like the young wretch hosting him. During the meal, a letter came for O'Connor. A friend of his had died, and he would have to travel across the countryside for the funeral, leaving his wife for two days. I'll go with you, she said. No, said O'Connor. You must stay and host our guests. Before he left, the captain came to O'Connor. You trust your wife to be left alone with all these sea dogs? Completely. She's well able to look after herself. Oh, I don't doubt that. But do you trust her not to take one of them into your bed? Of course. What kind of question is that? Would you put twenty guineas on your wife not getting close to another man in the next two days? Absolutely, said O'Connor. He shook on it and left the castle. The castle was large and fortified, but unguarded. The O'Connors could afford to live there, but not to sufficiently staff it. So the captain was quite easily able to sneak into the Lady O'Connor's room that night while she slept. He crept up to her bed and swiped two of her rings off the bedside table. With them in tow, the captain crept back out of the room. When O'Connor returned a couple of days later, the captain gave him the rings. So much for your faithful wife, he said. O'Connor was mortified and heartbroken. He paid the treacherous salt his money, and then went to the top of the tallest tower of the castle and sent for his wife. My love, your home. Yes, my darling, and I had heard there was another ship approaching the cliff. I wanted you to see it yourself. So O'Connor took his wife to the top of the castle's tallest tower and pushed her over the edge and sent her plummeting into the sea below. But miraculously, the Lady O'Connor did not hit any of the jagged cliffs on her way down, nor did she land and kill herself on any of the rocks below. She managed to right her position, but was knocked unconscious from the impact of the water. But an old woman was taking her dog for a stroll on the beach, when the dog began to bark. The old woman saw the lady plunge into the water. Mustering strength she didn't think she had any more, the old crone swam out to the drowning lady and pulled her in to safety. 
The old woman dressed Lady O'Connor with shabby but dry clothes and nursed her back to health. The Lady O'Connor was so confused. Why had her husband done this? What must have happened to him when he was away? But the Lady O'Connor did not have to wait long to get to the bottom of things, due to the majesty of gossip. The local folk would always tell tales about the couple that lived in the castle. And although the tales were often exaggerated, they were still revealing. The Lady O'Connor heard that the man who lived in the castle had murdered his wife after finding her in bed with another man. Lady O'Connor was heartbroken. She had always been faithful to her husband. Where had he heard this vicious rumour, and how could she prove her innocence when O'Connor clearly believed otherwise? The wronged woman soon heard another rumour, that the heartbroken O'Connor had gone to find a little man to whom he owed a great debt. They said that this was a journey he would not return from. The little man! Lady O'Connor had often heard her husband talk of the little man who had given him the gold to win her hand and how that debt had to be paid in full in one year's time. That year had come and gone and even though they had a splendid castle to live in, Lady O'Connor knew that they hadn't enough money to pay the little man back. O'Connor was going on a suicide mission, but not if Lady O'Connor had anything to say about that. Lady O'Connor asked one more thing of the little old woman who had saved her life. A horse to save her husband. The horse the woman sourced was not particularly large and quite old, but he would do. Lady O'Connor mounted her steed and galloped off to save O'Connor. She passed her former home of O'Donnell Manor. She knew she was looking for an old stone wall there. She didn't have to look for long, because she soon came to a stone wall like any other, but standing by it was what Lady O'Connor instantly recognised as her husband's horse. "'I'm too late!' cried she. She ran to the little house beside the stone wall, burst in the door without knocking, and there, on a kitchen table, was strapped O'Connor, bare-chested and gagged, a little man standing over him, brandishing a large, sharp and jagged knife. "'Get out of my house! You have no business here!' cried the little man. "'I happen to be his wife!' "'Then coach yourself lucky you don't befall the same fate as your husband here. "'He owes me a debt, a debt that is now forfeit. "'He must pay me instead with five pounds of flesh.' "'What good's that for?' To bait fish withal, if it would feed nothing else, it will feed my revenge. He hath disgraced me, and hindered me half a million. What are you talking about? Sorry, I was just riffing there. But Lady O'Connor had come with a plan. In your bargain of five pounds of flesh, did you mention anything of blood? No, why would I want blood? I'm not a savage. You really should have, because if your bargain is for five pounds of flesh, take it. But if you spill one drop of blood, I'll take this revolver and I'll shoot you. What are you talking about? How on earth am I supposed to cut flesh without dropping blood? You should have thought of that when you made the bargain. The little man was furious. He hopped about in anger and ultimately dropped the knife and relented. Take your husband, witch, and get out of here. Our debt is settled. O'Connor was freed from the table and embraced his wife. You're alive. My love, 
I don't know who told you I had been unfaithful to you, but such a thing could not be farther from the truth. I believe you. I should never have doubted you. How can you ever forgive me? Well, I just saved your life, so I obviously have it in me somewhere. Get out of my house, said the fairy again. The O'Connors held a massive dinner party in their castle when they returned. They invited Lady O'Connor's father, the old woman who had saved her life, and even the sea captain who had caused all this trouble. After dinner, Lady O'Connor asked that they would all tell a story. They each recounted their tales of the past few weeks, and when it came to the captain, he was initially hesitant to say anything. But as the night wore on and the drink kept flowing, his tongue eventually loosened. He told how he had snuck into Lady O'Connor's room and taken her rings, and wasn't at all hilarious because all was well now. Everyone laughed at the table, until Lady O'Connor took out her revolver and shot the captain through the chest. They threw the body back into the sea where it belonged, and no one again ever doubted, or for that matter crossed, the Lady O'Connor. The End What do you think of that? Beg your pardon. That is the story of the Lady O'Connor, as I call it. That is my own title on Fireside. And let me tell you the very, very interesting place that I got this story from. I know last week's episode I was talking briefly about Yeats. I can't remember what the context I was talking about him in was because I don't know if I mentioned particularly that at the moment I am reading The Aran Islands, which is a non-fiction memoir of the journals of John Millington Singh, the great Irish playwright, writer of the Playboy of the Western World and other the writers in the sea and other other great plays. Uh, he wrote this this memoir in the early in the early years of the twentieth century, where basically uh, Singh was a young poet who was living in Paris, which is where he met an older W. B. Yeats, uh, who was already an incredibly accomplished and already the greatest poet Ireland had seen. And Yeats, or Singh, used to submit poetry to Yeats. And Yeats would critique it for him. He would say, and he would say that it was really bad, that it was really generic, and it was basically like the kind of poetry that everyone was writing at the time. And Yeats said to Singh, "If you want to learn how to write, go to the Aran Islands. Go and live in the Aran Islands with the people." So at this point, the Aran Islands were populated by by a people totally. Uh, totally exercised from modernity, totally uh, separate to modernity whatsoever. They're very much a sea, a sea people, oil entirely, fishing, and you know, very very simple life. Nearly everyone just speaking Irish. Um, we're not entirely unlike still today, uh, particularly in the west of Ireland, but a very much a simpler time. And this was what Singh became obsessed with and what he would write all of his great literature about, what all of his great plays about, would be about these people in the west of Ireland. And he returned and lived on the Aran Islands for five summers after that. But he wrote this brilliant um uh, This work came from his journals. It's just basically written like one chapter. It's a short enough book of just his day-to-day time living on each of the 
Aran Islands. So the three are Inishmore or Aranmore, as Singh calls it in the in the piece, Inishman and Inishir. What they should be known as to a more contemporary theatre audience is, of course, Martin McDonough's incredible play, Inish trilogy, Aran Islands trilogy, as it was intended to be, which was the cripple of Inishman, the lieutenant of Inishmore, and there was to bo- supposed to be, I don't know, was it the Banshee of Inishir or something? There was supposed to be a, a third one, which I believe he did write, but just ultimately was unproduced. So I don't think he was as satisfied in it. But where this ties into this story, where it ties into the story of the Lady O'Connor, is that it being the Aran Islands, and very much in the west of Ireland, turn of the century, you know, late late 19th century, early 20th century Ireland, what is everyone talking about? They're talking about folklore, and there is a huge amount. Singh was an incredible folklorist himself, incredible collector of folklore. And he weaves folktales so beautifully into this piece he will just be talking about a fisherman who he's met and he's trying to learn Irish from him. And then he'll just say, and suddenly he told me this story, which I'll tell for you now. And then Singh just writes his own version of the story. And these are weaved so effortlessly throughout the throughout the work. And there's several of them. I anticipate there's at least one, if not two or three more stories that I'll take from this piece because they've been so unique and they've been ones that I haven't found anywhere else and I they just there's an incredible authenticity I find from them I love that we're basically through Singh Singh is used as as a mouthpiece to that we're getting these from direct direct sources of these quote of these stories and even like this one this one isn't even set on the Aran Islands themselves this is set uh, this is at in County Clare which again is not far from the Aran Islands whatsoever, but still like from the mainland, you know, this is stories from the mainland where so many of those people would rarely go to. But so this was the story. This was one of the first stories. It's early, early on in the work, but I just became obsessed with it. And of course, why my initial interest was, and Singh even talks about the stories afterwards, and he makes note of this, what most Irish people certainly will recognise from this story is the five pounds of flesh. Where do we know that from? We know that from our junior cert. We know that from the Merchant of Venice, which is what basically nearly every Irish school child in secondary school will either study uh, Romeo and Juliet or the Merchant of Venice for the junior cert, and then will either study Hamlet King Lear, Othello, or Macbeth for their leaving cert. Those will be their Shakespeare pieces. I myself did study The Merchant of Venice in junior cert, and I actually, I hated it. I am such a massive, massive Shakespeare fan now. Like, Shakespeare was, Shakespeare was what I was told was what got me into drama school. It's something that I haven't been able to do as much of as I would like to since graduating, but all throughout college and even in one of my final college years, we did a production of Twelfth Night, where I played the part of Malvolio and was still to this day one of my absolute favourite parts I've ever played. And even when I was still in school, I produced with one of my best friends. We produced and starred in our own production of Hamlet, where I played Hamlet and he played Claudius. So I've had a, I've had a long, I've had a long obsession with Shakespeare now entering nearly entering my late 20s and oh god that sounds depressing and sorry for anyone that age or older 
but for that's just because it seems that long since I've graduated drama school. But getting back to that, my my history with Shakespeare did not get off to a very good start because I hated The Merchant of Venice. And I don't even know why, because I really like it now. There's so much that stayed with me about it, and it has such great characters, and it's really funny. It's it's what's considered one of Shakespeare's problem plays, in that it's hard to categorize. It's you know it it is more so a comedy than a tragedy, but it has immense tragic elements, obviously, with the character of Shylock, the moneylender. But in case anyone isn't familiar with for anyone who isn't familiar with The Merchant of Venice who hasn't done, one of the key central points of The Merchant of Venice is that the titular merchant of Venice, Antonio, makes a deal with Shylock, the Jewish moneylender, to borrow money from him. And if he cannot pay the the money back, it's 3,000 ducats for three months. And if he cannot pay the debt back, uh, Shylock will be able to cut from him five pounds of flesh. The crucial part of this arrangement, of course, is that Sherlock mentions nothing about blood. And later on the play, when uh, Portia, who is another character who, uh, who one of Antonio's best friends, Pisanio, goes into Padua to try and marry Portia, ends up coming to Venice and dresses up as a male lawyer and ends up representing Antonio in the court. And it is her who basically figures out the plot the, the the loophole in the contract that if Shylock cuts the five pounds of flesh from Antonio but spills one drop of blood, then he will be put to death himself. And that is the the big central conflict and the big central reveal of the Merchant of Venice. Spoiler alert there. It's one of the great, great speeches, Portia's courtroom speech. What is it? Uh, the quality of mercy is not strained. Yes, that's the that's how the, the again those quotes just quotes even if you don't want them to they can bury themselves in there. Beautiful, beautiful line like that. But what's amazing here also the concept of the faithful wife seems to be a quite a big thing in folklore. It's one of those uh, archetypical tales, and that has roots that has roots in Shakespeare as well. Apparently in in the likes of Cymbeline and beyond that, Singh mentioned Cymbeline, which is a Shakespeare play I am not really familiar with at all. It would be one of the lesser, lesser performed, lesser known ones. But what's fascinating to Singh and what should be fascinating to us as well is that this story is told to him here by a man who, uh, by a man who is who Singh says is illiterate. I says, we have this illiterate man telling me this tale that is so, so steeped in European literature. That So the concept of the five pounds of flesh could not have originated, could not have originated with Merchant of Venice. It can be found in other sources as well. The concept of a pound of flesh is uh, it's, it's such a strong element to a story. And the idea of paying, paying back a debt that you can't with money with with your body that is such a strong idea and the idea of that coming into folklore and coming into this folktale is beautiful the you know you combine the perceived high art of the likes of Shakespeare and other higher forms of literature to what is considered a more base form of art as as folklore was considered a simpler tale but so much stronger because of that as well, in its simplicity. Again, as Phil Pullman says, as clear as water. There are nonetheless uh, several elements to this story that I 
cleared or simplified a little bit or just changed because I thought it made it uh, a, a stronger version. Uh, for one, uh, it is not... There is another... There is a character I cut entirely from this story and that is a second old woman. There is an old woman who the Lady O'Connor allows to stay in the house and the sea captain ends up bribing that old woman to let her, to let him into the castle so that he can steal the rings from Lady O'Connor. And at the end of the story, when the captain reveals that he snuck into the room, the Lady O'Connor shoots the old woman for accepting the bribe and doesn't, the captain seemingly gets away with it. He doesn't get shot or anything. And that didn't sit right with me at all. You know, killing the woman and not letting the, and letting the man live when it was the man who caused all the pr- trouble in the first place. So I wanted to put the sea captain more central and have it be him who got shot. Because, of course, that shooting comes out of absolutely anywhere and out of nowhere, seemingly. But I absolutely adored it as well. And just proper order. No hanging, because these stories I'll offer, often end with. And he was hung. He was hanged, like Mr. Fox or something. But I love the idea of this revolver. We had a Chekhov's gun situation where we had mentioned the revolver when the Lady O'Connor was trying to save her husband from the ferry. And then it just gets cracked out again. And it got done. One thing I have to mention as well, because I could not without. So the characters are unnamed, really, except it is mentioned one time that there is uh, that the boy's name is O'Connor. That's mentioned once. But otherwise, there's no title to the story because there's no title page in in uh, in any part of the Iron Islands in Singh's book. Sometimes he said, this is a story they say it was called, but he doesn't give a title here. But I loved the idea of the name, the Lady O'Connor, because she was mentioned that a couple of times, and I liked the idea of centralizing, centering it around her. That's another plot element that I cut up. So in the in the version I read, he pushes her into the water, he pushes her into the ocean, and then he goes off to work in a field. I think the same principle, you know, to reject his worldly possessions to go and toil the field. And she goes to try and find him, and because she's dressed in the tattered rags that the old woman who rescued her gave her, she's refused, and they think she's a liar. <clears throat> Beg your pardon. And she eventually finds him and they go to the fairy house together. But at no point does it say why they go or if they have a plan. They just kind of go there. And he says, do you have my money? And they say, no. And he said, okay, I'm going to take my pound of flesh. And she says, no, you won't. And so I liked making it much clearer that it is her who's saving him. And it is her who has this idea, this Lady O'Connor, who has this plan to save her husband. And I liked the idea of him more very clearly going to sacrifice himself, him not wanting to live any longer because he's pushed his wife over a cliff and he thinks she was cheating on him and he just wants to give up on everything and her bursting in and saving the day. I loved the idea of that. But these names we have, we started off with O'Connor the boy and she was the daughter of a Lord O'Donnell and this is just a little tip of the cap to two of my very dearest friends who I lived with together when I was in college, uh, Garrod O'Donnell and Rory O'Connor. And 
both at least one of whom still listens to this podcast i know i think garot does as well i hope he does if so hello garot hello in australia i miss you so very very much yes these are two of my very very dearest friends and i couldn't resist the idea of having their two namesakes marry each other I was going to throw an Olahan in there as well, but I thought that would just be a little bit on the nose because at least O'Connor and O'Donnell are very stuck. They're really believable folk, Irish folklore character names. But if you throw an Olahan in there, that's just pure nepotism. I was going to make oh, I was going to make the fairy an Olahan cause some trouble, as I have often for them. But I decided that just in my head, I'd picture that as the Olahan and not be so literal, so not to take you all out of that. For you to go, oh man, that's his name. What is he doing? What's he claiming? I won't go there. But I think I will wrap things up there. I don't think there's anything else I had to say. This episode is of a good, good length now. It's a good length story. Next week we move back to myth. And we are starting a third cycle of Irish mythology. We're past the halfway point now. This next one won't be a particularly long cycle, I don't anticipate. I've been reading up on it. I have already found some fantastic, fantastic stories for you to tell. But I'm going to make a crucial decision. I want this to be all killer and no filler. So the historical cycle is the final cycle of Irish mythology. But we have skipped one. We have skipped the longest and most considered most important and certainly most known about cycle and that is the Ulster cycle which is the cycle of Cúchulainn of Queen Maeve of the cattle raid of Cooley of Deirdre of the Sorrows the big big heavy hitters of Irish mythology the ones that any even the people with the vaguest of knowledge these are the names they'll have heard about but I wanted to save that until I felt I was at my very strongest because I still feel I'm getting better and better at writing and doing these episodes. And so I want them to be the climax. They want them to be the finale of our first our first year of Fireside. And we'll probably get to them before that. We'll probably get to them in about a month or so, or maybe two months. But I want this to be all killer and no filler. So I'm going to give you the historical cycle are going to be absolute bangers as well. Absolute clangers of folk tales. And I hope you all enjoy them. I'll find out some kind of order and I'll bring you the first tale next door, next week. I have an idea, but I won't say for sure what it is just because I want to make sure that it is the one that I'm thinking of in my head that I'm going to do. If I can have some kind of chronology, that'd be really good. Thank you so much to all you listeners out there. Thank you so much to everyone here at the Head Stuff Podcast Network Studios in Dublin. Uh, it is such a joy to come in here each and every week to record this podcast. Thank you to Jamie, my producer. Thank you to again to all of you who are listening. If you are a first-time listener, thank you so much. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much. Quick shout-out. Uh, I may have mentioned on this, or on this before that I run literary tours of Dublin. I take tourists around to the pubs that were frequented and haunted by the great literary giants of Irish literature, so the likes of Joyce Beckett, uh, Brendan Behan, uh, all these kind of characters, and... It's a great job. I've been doing it for I've been doing it during the summers for the last three years. I really, really adore doing it. I enjoy walking through Dublin and seeing Dublin through a tour size, through the frame of through the frame of the literature and I love meeting I love meeting people. I love travelling. I've obviously given so much of my work in recent years has been abroad. So I love meeting people from the places I've been and talking to them about those places. 
But I mentioned at the end of the tour last night, I've started talking about the podcast a little bit, just if anyone isn't sick of my hearing my voice after the end of the tour, that they can check it out, just to try and really grow the span of the podcast, of course. And afterwards, a woman from L.A. came up to me and said that she is a listener of the podcast, and she had been listening to it that day. So again, that was just the best thing. I spoke before about the girl who came up to me when we were in Columbus in Ohio and who had come to see the show to see Celtic Nights because she was a fan of the podcast. And just how how incredibly wonderful is that, that the medium of podcast, through the fact that it is free and that it is hosted on a site and just goes out into the ether and that people can just look it up, that anyone, it is accessible to any and all people. That is why I love this medium so much. And thank you all for listening. But I will go now. Uh, but I will see you next week for episode number 38. I won't see you, but you'll hear me next week on the fireside, by the fireside even. Goodbye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.